0: Morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my privilege this morning to get to share with you as we continue our series on the resurrection. So, we just started this series last week. Um, We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. So, if you have a Bible, if you would turn with us, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under one of the seats in front of you, and we'd invite you to grab that one. You can turn over to page 900 and 61 in the hardback Bible, and uh, we are going to pick up there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we, uh, we started this series last week, and here's what we said. Um, we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the truth of the resurrection. So this whole chapter, this is a chapter from a longer letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the first city, first century city of Corinth. And in this letter, um, specifically in this chapter, he really dives into the importance of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we said last week, and where we're going with this whole series, is this, that our hope, our only hope in this world, this world that is broken, this world that is full of pain and suffering, this world that is full of death, our only hope is in resurrection. Because death is a reality. There's no avoidance of death. The only solution to death is resurrection. Now, I want to clarify something. It wasn't a mistake, but there was an omission when we talked about this last week. And so I want to make sure that I cover all of this because the scope of this is so beautiful. When we say our hope is in the resurrection, last week we said... That hope is in the resurrection first in Christ's past historical resurrection from the dead. It was an event. It happened in the past, and our hope is in that event. And we have a hope in our future resurrection with him because of his past historical resurrection. We have a hope for a future resurrection after death of this body, a future resurrection, to live with Him forever. But in saying that, I fear I left out that there's a third level that also gives us hope. Because of Christ's past death, we have a present resurrection as well. Because all of us, Scripture teaches, are dead from our sins, we can experience resurrection now in Him. Through what the Bible refers to, and I don't want to get super technical or or deep right here off the bat, but but what the, the Bible refers to as a union with Christ, that we join him, not only hoping for a future resurrection, although we do that, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks a lot about that, we also are joined with him in a resurrection now, that our dead souls come alive in him. That, again, the, the word the Bible uses is regeneration, that we're brought to life, that we are dead because of our sin, and that because of Christ's resurrection, we are made alive. And, and so here's where we're going with this whole series, and this is where Paul is leading us in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of the death around us, the world around us and within us, our only hope, our only hope is in resurrection. And what we saw last week the news, the good news, the word for good news that Paul uses is gospel, the fact that Jesus was resurrected is everything. It's everything. To us as Christians, to those of us who believe in that truth, it's everything. It's our past, our present, our future. It's all of our hope. It's everything we've got. And that gospel As the word, the name implies is good news. It's a fact. It's a thing that happened. And when we say we have faith, we have faith in that thing. And the way we said it last week is our faith has an object. There's a thing that we trust in and it's the news that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. That's the gospel. That's what our faith is in. That's where our hope is found. That's what we are trusting in. But this week, As we move on into verses 12 through 19, Paul is going to kind of play a little hypothetical game. He's going to ask a question, and it's a difficult question, and and we actually saw this last week. In verse 2, he kind of teased this, and he dives much more deeply into it in verses 12 through 19, and here's the question. If our hope, if our faith, if everything we have as Christians and as believers hangs on that news, that good news, if that's everything for us, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and if it's more than a philosophy, and it's more than just his teaching, if it's what actually happened, what if, what if it didn't actually happen? What if it's not actually true? If everything we believe is hanging on that historical fact. What if it's not a historical fact? Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15, starting in verse 12, if you would follow along with me. Page 961, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But read verse 20 as well. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Um, so, Set, set the, the context for this. Um, I think we have to, to understand, and, and this is made clear in this passage, we can sometimes get, um, get into thinking wrongly about history. Um, we can start to think that because of human progress and, and progress in human innovation and understanding and learning, that we in some way as, as modern 21st century individuals have a deeper or more um, advanced intellectual understanding of the world than previous generations. C.S. Lewis referred to this as chronological snobbery. The idea that we today are just so much better, intrinsically better, that we just have things figured out, so much better than people in the past. And part of the way that plays out is with the idea of the supernatural. So if you read Scripture, over and over and over again, you're going to encounter supernatural stuff. Just events that, in our understanding of the natural world, are just not the way things work. We can use the word um, miracles. Uh, The Bible often refers to them as wonders. But just things that you know, when you read them, you just say, that's just not the way things happen." usually, okay? Number one on the list would be this idea that a guy died, was dead for three days, and then came back to life. And we read that, and we go, that's just not the way stuff usually works. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff, like like the sun standing still in the sky, or, or people walking on top of water, or people who are blind being given their sight, or a small amount of food being used to feed multitudes of people, all these different things, that if you just read them, you just that's just not normal. That's, that's not natural. And we naturally, maybe that's <laughs> naturally, are skeptical of what is supernatural. And that makes sense, because it goes against what we have observed and what we've seen with our own eyes. Here's what I want you to understand and hear and what we see in this passage. That's not modern the idea of being skeptical, the idea of being cynical, the idea of having a hard time believing in things outside of our realm of natural experience, that's not a new thing. So here's what we, we sometimes um, can, can start to think. Well, back in the first century, back when the gospel was spreading, back when news of Jesus was spreading all around the world, people were just more gullible back then. They were more credulous. They just If you told them a guy rose from the dead, they believed in that kind of stuff. Because they just didn't understand everything we understand. They just weren't as enlightened as us. They weren't as smart as we are now. Now we know that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Back then, they believed in it. Here's, Here's what we see, and here's what Paul is pointing out. Even then, even in Paul's day, there were people who pushed back really, really hard against the idea of anything supernatural. That they said, I like this story you're telling about Jesus. I love his teaching. I love the way he flips our understanding of morality upside down. I love the way he challenges the power structures and and he teaches about love and compassion for the marginalized. I love the way that he shows us a different view of the world. That stuff is great. I love what you guys are building here, and and specifically in Corinth. I love this this group of people who are living life together. They're supporting one another. They're, They're living in an authentic way. They're showing this love to each other. I love all that stuff. Can I have all that stuff, and can I take this stuff about somebody dying and coming back to life, can I just kind of push that off to the side? Can I just have all this good stuff, and just try to kind of ignore this supernatural part of it. Now that's totally resonant with us today, isn't it? I mean, there's this part of all of us, I think, that struggle with some of these supernatural ideas that we see in Scripture. And we love the stuff that seems really relevant to our modern day lives, Man, I just love the way Jesus teaches and what the world could look like and what it would look like if we were all following his teaching. And I love the way that as a a group together we can find unity within diversity and all that stuff that is just so beautiful. Can I have all that stuff and can I set aside all these really hard to believe things? Can I just push the, the resurrection? Can I push the gospel? Can I push that over to the margin and can I just have the results of it? Can I just live in that and enjoy what that brings and the benefits that brings to my life? And here's Paul's answer. Absolutely not. Unfortunately, Paul says in in this passage, there is no possible way to separate out all the benefits of what it means to follow Christ and what it looks like in our lives to follow Christ. There's no way to separate that out from the idea of his resurrection. In fact... Paul's conclusion, his ultimate conclusion through this passage, in verse 19, is if that part's not true, if the supernatural stuff didn't happen, if there's no resurrection from the dead, being a Christian is miserable. It's if, the way he says it, if it's not true, and we're following Jesus and we're structuring our lives around his teaching, and we're believing that we have some kind of hope in him, but there's no resurrection, we should be pitied. People should look at us and shake their heads and feel sorry for us. Because what, what an awful way to build and structure your life around a lie. If it's not true, Paul says, there's so much Better things we could be doing. If this isn't true, there are so many other better ways to live our lives. This gathering here, this morning, you guys all chose to come out this morning on a Sunday morning. There's so many other things you could have done this morning. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, let's close the doors and go home. Paul's saying there's absolutely no point to Christianity if the resurrection's not true. <clears throat> of course, Paul himself knows that the resurrection is true. He states it as a fact. It did actually happen. Without it, we would be miserable. With it, we have great hope. So in verses 12 through 19, Paul goes through in a very logical way. I mean, this is pure logic that he's deploying here to just say, here's what the consequences are. If no resurrection, if that, then this. I mean, just structures it all perfect, what we would call in logic, like a syllogism of this, then this, therefore that. I mean, just just lays it all out very logically. As you study through that on your own, you can just see how he breaks it all down. I want to focus this morning in our time together on the conclusion that he comes to, and specifically three things, three very serious things that Paul points out, that if the, if the resurrection never happened, then these are three very, very, very serious consequences, three things that would lead us to be, of all people most to be pitied. Why does he say that? Why would it be so miserable for us if the resurrection never happened? And here's three things that would be true if there is no resurrection. Now, let me underline this too before we go on. The reason these things are so serious is not because they would be devastating for, quote, the church, as a structure or as an institution. Okay? If... If the resurrection never happened, and therefore Christianity is not true, and that's all it means, then we just move on. We can just move on. We'll just find a different worldview that fits better what's actually true. If all it means is Christianity's over, then, then let's put an end to Christianity and move on to something else. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. Because these three results, if the resurrection's not true, point to three very, very deep needs within each and every one of us. Deep, deep needs that only the resurrection, only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus Christ can actually truly meet. That if the resurrection's not true, it doesn't just mean we won't meet together on Sunday mornings anymore. It means that there are many, many, many deep emotional, psychological, philosophical, existential needs that will go unmet in our lives. Yes, the gospel is news. It's an event. It actually happened. But that event has serious, serious consequences in our lives. For example, Paul makes it really clear. If the resurrection never happened, our faith is futile. There's no point to our faith. Look at verse Uh, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He says it again in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We looked at that word vain last week, and we said what it means is empty. It means there's no point, there's no purpose, there's no object to it. It's just faith on its own. And faith on its own, and again, this is very much the sermon last week, and so we're not going to repeat it all this week, but faith has no power by itself. Faith is only as strong as what our faith is in, but here's the truth of this. We all desperately need something to trust in. We all have a deep, deep desire for something, something outside of ourselves, where we can place faith, where we can put our hope, something that we can hang on to that we know is not going to change, something that's not going to shift, something that will be there as everything around us is changing. Look, we live in chaotic worlds. Your life is chaotic. This world we live in is changing all the time, and we all desperately need something that we can hold on to that is not going to change. We have to have something that we know that we can go to it and it's going to be there. And we look and we try to put our faith in so many different things because this is a deep human need. <clears throat> we find ourselves putting faith in, in, in money. If I can get enough of it, if I can just secure enough, then I will be secure in my finances. But we know, and you know, there's no such thing as enough. And no matter how much you have, it's always, the the, the line of what you're looking for is always shifting. We put our faith frequently in another person. And we believe if we can just find the right person, the person we can trust in, and we can establish a relationship with that person and we can hold on to that person and they will not change they will be there for us then we will be secure what happens so so lots of us enter into relationships sometimes into marriages thinking this is the person this is where i'm putting my trust this is where my faith will be in this person as long as they don't change everything's good what happens are humans. They change. Things shift. And we realize that we've placed our faith in the wrong place. There's a cycle that happens. We get married because we think that person is going to give us everything we need. That we put our trust in them to fulfill us. They don't. So we go, and then we have kids, and we put our faith in our kids, and they're going to be the ones. And we see how that turns out, right? And they don't fulfill us, and they don't bring us, and then It gets into, I hear, I'm not there yet, but the grandparents, and I don't know if you've ever seen the way grandparents act with their grandkids, but it's just we just keep transferring our faith in a person. This will be the person who's going to give me the security I need. This is the person that is going to take and give me all the love that I need. This is where I'm going to find my hope. This is where I'm going to find my joy. And it doesn't work. Ultimately, a lot of times we find ourselves just trying to put faith in ourselves. Because we recognize that everything else, everyone else I've put my faith in is shifting and I can't trust them. But at least there's me. I know I'm going to be steady. Why are you laughing? <laughs> like that's the, and, and so we find ourselves looking and looking and looking for somewhere to put our faith. The gospel tells us there is a person where we can trust, who we can trust in. A person who will not change. A person who said he would conquer death, and he did it. And he did it for us. A person who loves us so much that he was willing to give up everything. Not because we earned it, and not because we're good enough. And not because we had faith in him that was so strong that he said, because of you, I'm going to do this. He just said, because I love you, I'm going to do this and whether we change and however we shift and no matter how we fail he is steady for us the gospel tells us that jesus christ is the only one worthy of our faith and he proved it by his death and his burial and his resurrection if the resurrection is real, if it actually happened, we have a person we can trust in. We have a place where we can put our faith. Not in ourselves, not in anybody else, not in anything else, but in Jesus Christ. If the gospel is not true, that faith is totally meaningless. If it is true, we have an anchor. If the gospel is not true, our faith is futile. If the gospel is not true, we have no forgiveness for our sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So we said this earlier. The resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just promise us a future resurrection. It promises us a present resurrection from our own current state of death and decay. That we are, because of our sin, because we are separated from God, because of all the things that we have done, individually and corporately as a human race, everything we've done against Him, everything we've done to rebel against everything that He is, all of our pride, all all of our attempts to do life without God, separate us from God. But the resurrection gives us new life in him. Raises us up from our dead state of separation and gives us forgiveness. If there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then to say that we're united with him, we're still dead with him. And this is really bad. Because all of us know, whether you use words like sin or not, we all have within us a deep, deep need to feel clean, to feel right, to feel justified. We all carry within ourselves guilt and shame, and we desperately need to feel that there's a solution, that there's a way that that can be absolved, that there's a way that that can be cleansed. This is why we get so defensive when we're criticized, because we want to know, we want to feel that we're right. And whether a criticism is true or not, it's poking at our sense that we try to construct of ourselves that I'm good, I've got this, I figured everything out. And when somebody points out, whether they're telling the truth or not, when they point out that there might be something about us that isn't absolutely pure, we throw up the walls. We go on the defensive. Maybe that's just me. You probably don't struggle with that like I do. Man, when I get, when I get criticized, I get, I get so mean sometimes. Because you can't think that about me. We have this, this deep need for others to look at us and believe that we're clean. And in our own hearts, we want to believe that we're right. And so we we make excuses. We construct our own sense of morality of why the things that are hurting and making us feel guilt and shame aren't actually all that bad. Right? It's not actually, I mean, yes, I feel this way, but I just shouldn't feel that. It's not that I've done anything wrong, it's my feelings are telling me, and my, my shame and the way to deal with my guilt is to just convince myself that I'm not actually guilty, that that thing's not actually, some of us use scripture to do this, right? If you look at verse this in, in chapter this of this and cross-reference with this, then this is not all that bad. I'm actually okay. I can do it and it's all fine. The gospel, though, comes in and says, no, no, you're, you're really that bad. In fact, the gospel comes in and says, no, actually you're worse. You're worse than you realize. The the depth of your sin, the the consequence of your sin, the seriousness of your sin is is just as bad, if not worse, than what you would like to admit. But, but, Jesus' love is even greater. As bad as your sin is, Jesus Christ took it on Himself. He died to take your sin, to take the punishment for your sin, to gain forgiveness for your sin. Here's the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not and never can be totally and completely free. And we talk a lot about how Jesus' death death His his resurrection, His gift to us is a free gift. His grace toward us is free. And from our perspective, that's true. Here's what we have to understand. It's not free in this sense. It cost Jesus everything. It cost Him His life. He was tortured and murdered to buy your forgiveness. Now, we understand forgiveness is, is not actually free because when there is a wrong, when there is a debt, someone has to pay it. Someone has to absorb it. Whether it's the person who accrued the debt or the person who is forgiving the debt, there's a cost. Okay? Just in the simplest metaphorical terms, if I borrow $5 from you, I won't pay it back. I mean, I might pay it back, but I probably won't, okay? That's why I'm borrowing it. If I had the money, I wouldn't. I'm sorry. It's just true. Um, If I borrow $5 from you and I don't pay it back, you paid the cost. Now, you could come in and say, I forgive you. You don't have to pay it back. And I thank you for that. I really do. Um, It's probably in your best interest because I'm not paying it back. (laughs) And it'll just make you feel better. But it didn't just go away. You have to absorb the cost. You're, You're with me on this, right? You understand what this looks like. When you're in a much more serious way, when you are hurt, when someone does something that emotionally damages you, to forgive that person comes at a cost to you. Saying you forgive them, coming to a place where you forgive them, does not automatically take away that pain, it doesn't remove the hurt. You still have to absorb the pain from that offense. Forgiveness always has a cost. The cost of the forgiveness of our sins has to be a sacrifice of life. Our sin is so serious. The debt for our rebellion against a holy and perfect God is so high the only possible payment is death. Jesus took that payment on himself for us. We think and we try to convince ourselves that we can earn that forgiveness on our own by being good, by making up for it, by living morally, justify ourselves. We can't because the, the, the cost Would be our very lives. And without Christ, that is the cost. But because Christ took that debt for us, we are offered life in Him. Forgiveness to us, free, but not free to Him. And without His resurrection, there is no forgiveness. Without His resurrection, He's still dead in the tomb. And we're still dead right there with him. His death brought death to our sin, but his, only his resurrection brings us new life in him. I, I have to remind myself daily, daily, that my sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. That I don't have to justify myself. That I don't have to seek to to earn my relationship with God or with anybody else, that all of that, all of that has already been paid for. Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness for our sins. Because of the resurrection, we have forgiveness. We have a new life. We have a different standing. We have a God who looks at us and no longer sees our sins. He sees Christ's sacrifice covering over us. But without the resurrection, our faith is futile. Without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sin. And ultimately, because of what we just said about forgiveness, without the resurrection, death is the end. Look at verse 18, which sounds a little bit redundant then those also, if there's no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, then verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It sounds like Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, then those who die have died. And you go, well, right. I I don't know a lot about logic, but that sounds like a pretty logical statement. But understand, he's using two different terms. To fall asleep in Christ, fall asleep is used frequently in the Bible to mean a phys- the physical death, the death of our physical bodies. But if we believe, if we understand, if we take it to mean, as Paul is saying in this passage, that there's something more to us than just our physical body, if all of us have a, a supernatural or a spiritual element to us, then the physical death doesn't have to be the end, but if there's no resurrection, then our physical death is the end. And the word perish means to be totally wiped out, to cease to exist. What Paul's saying here, if there's no resurrection, then when your physical body dies, you're done. It's over. There's nothing else beyond this life. The only way there's anything beyond this life is if the resurrection is true. Now, this one's huge. Because all of us want desperately to believe that there is more to life than just this life. So a uh, psychologist, a very famous psychologist named Abraham Maslow, came up with a theory, um, and some of you have seen this before, There it is. Um, You probably saw this chart, this pyramid, like in your, if if you took like a psychology class in college, you've seen this. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So here's what Maslow said. Maslow was a psychological theorist who theorized that all of us have certain needs, we know that, but he said that they work on on different levels. And the reason it's constructed as a pyramid is this, at the base level are the absolute core fundamental things you have to have to survive. And until those needs are met, you can't even worry about the needs above it. And until those needs are met, you can't. And so it moves up in levels, and you can't be too worried about the ones at the top until the ones at the base are, are fulfilled. That makes sense, right? So the base level is what he called physiological needs, that you have to, be, you have, to ha- have food, you have to have shelter, you have to have you know, physical safety, you have to survive. And it's not until you move past that that you even start to care about stuff like love or self-esteem or anything like that. So, Maslow had this chart, and at the apex, at the very top, what he would describe as our deepest need when you really dig down past all the stuff at the surface, the just getting by, just managing to survive, when you get past that, the deepest need that we have, he used the term self actualization, which means this that we need to believe that we know who we are, we have an understanding of ourselves. We have a purpose and we live within that purpose that, that we have not just self-esteem, but that we understand ourselves and we're comfortable with ourselves and we're living for that. Now, here's what a lot of people don't know about this chart. If you, and if you Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which, don't do that right now. Okay, let me finish preaching first. But when you do, this is probably the chart that's going to come up. Here's what a lot of people don't know. Shortly before his death... As Maslow lived, and this was his thing, I mean, this is what he's known for, and so he did a lot more research and and continued, you know, interviewing people and and doing all the kind of research that he he did with this. Shortly before his death, he came to believe that there was actually another need that went above self-actualization. As he met and talked to people, people who could say they were self-actualized, people who had a clear sense of who they were, and a confidence about themselves, and yet there was still something missing. That even beyond ourselves, we still have a deep, deep need for something else. Maslow used the term, and he revised his pyramid shortly before his death, and he added at the top, above self-actualization, the term transcendence. That all of us need more than just to be happy with ourselves, we all need to feel something greater than ourselves. We all have within us a desire to know that there's something more and that we can be a part of something more. That as we look and as we go through life, and and the survival mode, and even the happiness mode, that we know that ultimately there's something else out there. And even when we've reached what, what we believe, and our culture tells us is the pinnacle of success, that there's still something more. Something that transcends the physical world that we can see around us, and we desperately want to be a part of. We know there is something greater, something more beautiful, something more glorious. And we want that. Paul says, if the resurrection is not true, there's no transcendence. There's nothing beyond this world. If the resurrection's not true, you've got this life, and that's it, and then it's over. And you better figure out how to maximize these 72 years or less to get the most out of it. If the resurrection's not true, you've got to pack everything you can in right now. And you either, and there's two ways you can go with that. I mean, you can live totally for yourself, because this is it. So you better squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of it, Or, you better wrap your whole life around building some kind of a legacy that's going to go on beyond you. And so maybe, even though you're going to cease to exist, maybe people will remember you. And maybe you can leave a lasting imprint that's going to go on beyond you. And so you got a huge weight hanging on you that you better do something that really matters in this life. And either way, you're living with an incredible burden... To make every single second of your life count. If death is the end and it's all over, you better figure out the best way to maximize right now. Because the clock is ticking. And if that's true, wasting any time here, talking about Jesus... Some guy who lived over 2,000 years ago and is dead? That's not getting you anywhere. And that's why he says, if that's our hope, if we've got this life and this life only, and we're putting our hope into Jesus for this, man, I feel sorry for us. Because it's not going to get us there. If this is all we have, Christianity is actually going to push us backward. Religion, without the gospel, is nothing but an attempt to find faith, forgiveness, and life in vain. It's empty. And and the idea that sometimes we say, but as long as it, it makes you feel good, as long as you have faith and your faith gives you hope, if there's nothing to back that hope up, if that hope and that faith is just in ourselves, that's just self-delusional. That's not joy. That's really sad. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's A fact. It's not a philosophical idea. It's not just a a theory that could be beneficial as we apply it to our lives. It's true. And whether we believe it or not, it's true. We just don't experience any benefit from it if we don't believe in it. The resurrection is true, and it does, therefore, meet our deepest needs. Our need to have security, something we can trust in. Our need to be forgiven. To escape from our guilt and our shame, and our need for something greater, a life beyond this life. Those needs are met only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? Just as we conclude, here's a thought. There's another thing that Paul mentioned, and and I didn't pull it out as like one of the main deep needs, but there's something else that's totally vain and pointless if the resurrection's not true. You probably caught it. Verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if people talk about it, if we go around sharing this story, How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Talking about the scripture, telling other people about the gospel. If there's no resurrection, totally pointless. Um, But because the resurrection is true, there's a point and a purpose to preaching the gospel. Now, when we say preaching the gospel, I'm not just talking about me or Steve or whoever standing up here and telling you about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's a part of it. That's a part of it. There's a purpose for being here this morning. There's a reason that you come here on a Sunday, that you carve out time, that even though there are a million other things you could be doing right now, that we believe the best thing you can be doing right now is to be here. And it's not, it's not because I think I'm really entertaining. I'm not, okay? It's not because I think I'm going to give you 12 steps to a happier life. It's not because I have secrets to success to make your life simpler or easier or improve your relationships. It's none of that. The reason we gather together, the reason we proclaim this news is to remind ourselves to remind each other of the gospel. Paul said it last week, and we're just going to keep coming back to it. We forget. We forget that everything rises and falls on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We put our faith everywhere else. We need to be reminded regularly this is where our faith belongs. This is our hope for resurrection. This is our joy. This is our peace. It's Jesus. And we need to come together and remind each other of that. This is why we have community groups. That you can have a group of people who gets together regularly. Who speaks into your life not just on Sunday morning but throughout the week. And reminds each other. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to hear it. Over and over and over again. The other thing that kind of comes out of this and Paul has stated it implicitly but let's just make it really explicit. It's incumbent that we believe the gospel. That here's the truth this is what happened this is where we need to place our faith. Now, if you believe in that, if you've trusted in that, then we respond. And we would love to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So today, we're going to have baptism. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a symbol. It's not... Please, let's be really clear about this. It's not in itself a supernatural action that does anything. It's a display of a supernatural action that God has already done and is already doing within you. That by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we with him die to our sin and are raised again to new life. And if you've trusted in that, if you are trusting in that, In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, to be the thing that gives you hope, that gives you new life, then Jesus invites us to display that through the act of baptism. And so we want to give that opportunity this morning. We have the baptismal here and ready to go. If you have believed the gospel and have never been baptized, we would like to invite you this morning to do that. We have uh, one person scheduled to be baptized already and we hope everybody will stick around after we're going to do communion and afterward we'll take a short like five minutes to get ready and then we'll come back and we hope everybody will come in to celebrate this this person who wants to declare to all of us today, I believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of myself and we want to celebrate that together. But if you've never done that, if you've never been baptized, you have the opportunity this morning. If you want to go out to Connection Point, and we'll talk, and you can talk with somebody, and and that you can get baptized this morning, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I can't go into that tank and get completely soaked. I know it's raining, but I can't just like it's not that heavy of a rain that nobody would notice. Here's the great news: we have extra clothes all the extra clothes you could need, okay? We even have some really cool trailhead baptism t-shirts. Don't do it just for the t-shirt, okay? I know, <laughs> I know, it's compelling, but, but if, you want, if you want to make public your belief in the gospel, we have an opportunity today. And so when we have a break, um, when we go into communion, if you'd like to step out to Connection Point, there's somebody there, and you can talk to them about how you can get baptized this morning. right? Let's take a few moments. We'll have some time of reflection and then we'll share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're so good to us. God, you love us so much. God, we deserve none of it. We try so hard in our own human effort to be good enough to find anything else that we can hang on to, to give us hope, to give us peace, to give us joy. And you're right here calling us to yourselves. God, today please break down those walls that separate us. Draw us closer to you. Turn our eyes totally on the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let that, let that be the thing, the news, the fact that we can trust in, where we can find our hope. God, my prayer, if there's anybody who is hearing this for the first time, or the 500th time, that today they would believe, they would trust in you and you alone, in the name of your Son, your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ.